Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hi, this is Colin, and this is a somewhat unusual show we're trying to do. The Watergate break-in turns 51 today if you're listening on Saturday, or close to today if you're listening on some other day. And over the years, we've done at least five shows that in some way or another touched upon the Watergate break-in, but often how it surfaced through culture. And this ranges from an amazing and kind of legendary interview that I had with Hal Holbrook in 2015 to our most recent conversation, which is about was about the HBO series about the Watergate burglars, White House plumbers. So all of that and a lot of other things are going to be folded together. We've never tried to do anything quite like this before. So stay tuned. I think it's going to be a fun ride. break-in happened on June 17th in 1972. So depending on when you're listening to this, it's been about 51 years. And we decided, you know, we've talked a lot about Watergate over the years. And we have episodes and episodes and episodes in which Watergate comes up in one way or another. Because it's us, we're usually processing it through the lens of culture somehow. What did novelists do? What did filmmakers do? What was it like for the actor Hal Holbrook to play Deep Throat? All of that you're going to hear about on today's show. But first, we talked to Thomas Mallon in 2014 about his most recent novel at the time, Watergate, a novel. Thomas Mallon is a critic and essayist and the author of many novels, including Henry and Clara and Fellow Travelers. His newest out this year is Up With the Sun. You'll hear him talk about the novel he was working on at the time, which eventually became 2015's finale, a novel of the Reagan years. I started my conversation with Mallon by quoting to him from Don DeLillo. Just as Mallon's Watergate is an interesting and necessary retelling of that story, DeLillo told the story of the Kennedy assassination in a book called Libra. And at one point, one of his protagonists, a CIA agent who's trying to make some kind of sense of this enormous midden of information and documentation and analysis and forensic detail, uh, he talks about what a conspiracy really is. He says it's a rambling affair that succeeded in the short term due mainly to chance, deft men and fools, ambivalence and fixed will, and what the weather was like. And I sense a little bit of that approach in your novel, Watergate, Thomas Mallon, this sense that we want to see it as this coherent narrative, but really it's sort of a bunch of people kind of bouncing off each other in ways that ultimately ruined lives and and tore down the reputation of a president. I think that's true. I think that there's a great deal of accident and fate that operates in history. I think this is one of the reasons that conspiracy 
believers who don't want to believe in those things, accident and fate, are, are so tenacious. But I think they often upset the apple cart. And I think things happen for reasons that are preposterous. And Watergate, I think, is one of them. There certainly was a deliberate crime that was committed in Watergate by a small original conspiracy that almost certainly, and even John Dean will agree with this, did not include Richard Nixon. But then the conspiracy to cover it up grew and grew and grew and grew. And what I've always tried to do in fiction is show how political events, catastrophes and so forth, affect people personally. You know, there's that phrase, the personal is political, an old 60s phrase. I think in some ways my mantra for writing historical fiction has been the political is personal. Try to show what it does to individuals, not try to rewrite history in fiction, not try to show, you know, an alternate history as some novels do, have the South win the Civil War, things like that, but show what might have happened in addition to what we actually know, things that happened within the cracks. So, I mean, obviously, why did you write this novel? Well, you wanted to write a novel. It's one of the things you do. You write novels. You write novels that often feature real historical people in them. But what else did you want to do? Did you have some general purpose beyond the fact that you just write novels the way people climb mountains? Did you have some general purpose in, in framing Watergate any particular way? I had no set moral thesis, no, uh, which I think is deadly for any kind of fiction, historical or otherwise. One is likely to emerge, as you write, I think, you know, a message, which sounds sort of pompous, but nonetheless, it, it does sort of bubble up as you actually work. And I, one of the things that I wanted to do was to show how certain relatively minor figures may have experienced Watergate, and then also to show a somewhat different view of the Nixons themselves, especially Mrs. Nixon, who was not the plastic pat of American caricature, was a much more interesting, much tougher person than that. And to some extent, Nixon himself, who was multidimensional, had a tremendous dark side, but was a man of enormous political gifts, even intellectual gifts to some extent. He would not have interested me, you know, if he was just a rubber Nixon mask, if he was some cardboard villain. That wouldn't have appealed to me as a novelist. So I was trying in a way to bring out different dimensions of them from the usual ones, and also to show some of these minor characters, but above all, to entertain readers. There are comic aspects to the book, although I wouldn't call it a comedy, but fundamentally to tell a good story and let the reader discern whatever messages might be there. One of the things that we're going to talk about here a little bit is this whole question of, of living memory. And, you know, every year somebody dies, right? Somebody dies who was a, a key figure in Watergate. And, and in writing this, how much did that factor for you become a factor for you? How much did you care whether certain people were either alive or not alive or and therefore either prepared to dispute or not prepared to dispute things that you said? Well, I, I was usually glad if I discovered they were dead because it always – I mean whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, that's going to give you a much freer hand. There are a few living principles of the Watergate scandal who are still around, John Dean and a few others. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein uh, on the uh, journalistic side of it are still there. 
I didn't want to focus on them because not really just because they were living and, you know, I would have to worry about their reactions to things, but they were all people who had told their own stories, had written their own books. It's true that the number of books is absolutely enormous. I mean, uh, this is one of the only projects I've ever worked on where I wished there was less material to consult. I mean, you have the tapes, you have all of the transcripts of the investigations, and you have this shelf shelves of memoirs that just about everybody wrote, sometimes just to pay their legal bills. They were writing memoirs before even the resignation. So as a novelist, you do want a free hand. You operate different from a historian. A historian or biographer will say, you know, at this moment, it is not unreasonable to think that Richard Nixon might have thought, whereas if you're a novelist, you just go ahead and have him think it. You just go ahead and have him say it. And not that I want to discourage people from reading my novel. <laughs> I don't. But as I say in one of the afterwards to one of my novels, it's important to remember that nouns always trump adjectives. And in the phrase historical fiction, fiction is the noun. So, you know, I, I'm always a bit leery when people come up to me and they say, oh, I learned so much history from your book. I always want to say, well, be careful because, you know, some of it's been manipulated and it's been put through the mill of fiction and the result is very different. I'd, I'd be horrified if my book was the only book that um, somebody read <laughs> who was interested in Watergate. Would, do you feel there's some kind of obligation to keep this story alive and for people to remember? I mean, does it matter for the United States or for history or for whatever? I'm not sure it matters more than a lot of other events that Americans don't know much about. You know, if you quiz them on the Constitution, if you quiz them on events of the Civil War, Second World War, they might know even less. But certainly I think Watergate has a kind of relevance. It has a kind of relevance in dealing with the psychology of all sorts of people who get involved in politics. And I also think the question that sometimes proceeds from the one you're asking, will there ever be another Watergate? And my answer to that would be absolutely yes. It won't involve burglary. When you go back to the scandal, which seemed so high tech at the time, bugging devices, tape recordings, whatever, you know, it now seems very primitive. And yet the impulse to spy on your opponents remains evergreen among politicians. And I think there most certainly will be another Watergate, but it will take, you know, an electronic form. I mean, one of the things I know is that Richard Richard Nixon would have loved the internet. Uh, it was right up his street. I mean, he, the connection <laughs> from one thing to another, the ability to furrow in, to hack in. Nixon was a great aggregator of information and a great processor of it. So I think Watergate is, is useful still to know about because it may well prefigure something as big or even worse. So Thomas Mallon, you attempted to tell this story in the form of a novel. You did tell the story in the form of a novel. But I guess what I want to know is, as you sat down to tell it that way, did you feel ultimately as though you have enough of a grasp of this weird, sprawling, octopus-like story so that you could sit down with a 22-year-old person today and in you know two or three minutes explain Watergate to them? Do you feel like you know what this story is? Not Completely, <laughs> not perfectly by any means. I mean, the book actually comes with a cast of characters, you know, a long list of the dramatis personae in the front, because I think readers actually, including readers who lived through it, need to refer back to that at times, because the cast of characters ultimately grew so large. And this is a story that took you know, more than two and a half years to unfold, really three or four, because Watergate has its roots in other things within the Nixon administration. And it was, to some extent, 
epic to some other extent. It was claustrophobic. It was a Washington story to a great extent. And its ramifications were huge, but the things that it actually involved, the actual wrongdoing, was sometimes so small, so petty, so trivial. Pat Nixon, in my book, thinks at one point Watergate was enormous, colossal, and it was nothing. And I think one thing, too, I think it's also important not to overestimate Watergate's importance in American history and Watergate's relevance to political life today. I don't think that ultimately what happened in terms of Watergate crimes disrupted the electoral process of 1972. And I do think what was at issue, I'm writing about the the novel I'm working on right now is about the late Reagan years and Iran-Contra figures largely in it. And I do think what was at issue in Iran-Contra was much more serious than what was at issue in Watergate, much more fundamental about the balance of power between the presidency and the Congress. I think another real difference between those two scandals, why did Iran-Contra recede and why did Reagan survive, whereas Watergate, if it was less serious, why did that bring down Nixon, has a lot to do with the personalities of the two men. The public was prepared to accept an apology from Ronald Reagan, which he ultimately delivered. He didn't deliver it as soon as many people wanted to, and they were prepared to accept his excuse that he was confused about it and didn't really know the full implications of what he was doing. That's an excuse that no one would ever have accepted from Richard Nixon, who had the persona of a prosecutor, who had the persona of somebody who was always on top of details. It had also to do with the temperament of the two men. Nixon and Reagan are in touch with each other quite a bit during the fall of 1986. They're on the phone. Pretty often, Reagan valued Nixon's advice. And one of the things that I think is poignant and interesting is in the early days of Iran-Contra, late in 86, well before the investigations are fully underway in 87 within the Congress, Nixon's advice to Reagan is to apologize, to get it behind him. In other words, do what I failed to do early on, take responsibility for it, and move ahead. Once Reagan did that, to a great extent, any impetus to get rid of him began to collapse. Correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas Mallon, but there's kind of a sense of Watergate in your novel that it could take a relatively benign person, a relatively you know morally sound person, and somehow or other whirl him around like a whirlwind in, until he was something else, or at least he was going to be forever understood as something else. I mean, did, were you able to think deeper into that question, how it could be the case that people who were, who were not necessarily bad people or inclined towards criminal or illegal activities wound up doing things like that? Oh, I think that happens to people who get involved in political life all the time. I think it's part of the nature of power. It's part of the nature of the combat of politics. I mean, we haven't mentioned Sam Irvin, who was the head of the Senate committee that investigated Watergate in 73. And one of the early witnesses before the Irvin committee was a young man named Hugh Sloan, who was the treasurer for the committee to reelect the president, creep as it was called. And Sloan had gotten enmeshed in what was going on, the finances of it, and was called to testify and was rather, you know, upset and regretful about things that had happened. He was very quickly in over his head and he told what had happened. And Senator Irvin, you know, who quoted scripture a lot, said to him, uh, basically kind of absolved him and said, you know, an honest man is the noblest work of God. And Sloan came away from Watergate 
fine. I'm not trying to imply he did anything seriously wrong, but I think people who, what my old mentor, Mary McCarthy, used to call the conflict between excited scruples and inertia of will occurs all the time in politics when you know that what you're about to do is wrong, but there are tremendous pressures on you to do it. I think you even see that in somebody who ultimately is a much more, I suppose, sinister figure like Howard Hunt, whom I actually knew slightly toward the end of his life. And Hunt, who had been a CIA agent and then became one of the plumbers and then became one of the architects of the break-in, Hunt did some service to his country, some genuine service to his country early in his life, and as time went on, became incapable of making distinctions as to what was legal, what was illegal, what was proportionate, what was disproportionate, and became involved you know, in some spectacular wrongdoing. But even Hunt, I don't think, is this black-and-white figure, this figure of pure villainy. And certainly from a novelist's point of view, that's the kind of person you become interested in writing about. That was the writer Thomas Mallon talking about E. Howard Hunt in 2014. We'll take a break. When we come back, the Nose will discuss Woody Harrelson's recent turn as E. Howard Hunt in the HBO limited series White House Plumbers. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. We're looking at how we remember Watergate through the lens of popular culture. On a recent notes, we did talk about the newest popular retelling of the story. That was HBO's White House Plumbers with Jim Chapdelaine, Emmy-winning musician, and the great Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College. And so, Jim, this is something that is kind of – Jim and I are essentially the same age. I think we're about three or four months apart. So this is something that's in our memories, and it's weird for me seeing it, you know – done by Woody Harrelson and Jason Theroux. Well, I agree. It's sort of funny to see like history imagined in front of you or reimagined. Although I think it's pretty accurate, even though it's a little slapsticky. I don't remember at the time I was in high school uh, driving around doing terrible things in a little town. So I don't remember a lot of the details. I had forgotten about Howard Hunt's wife dying in a plane accident a lot of the peripheral things, I had forgotten about them breaking into uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to trigger a lot of this stuff. And I had forgotten how horrible these people are 
And yet this series makes me like them in the way that I like Steve Buscemi in The Death of Stalin. I love the slapstick part of it, even though I was put off by that initially. Macho. What happened? We had a little trouble with the lock on the filing cabinet. It broke. So we had to improvise. You know, the whole point of the operation, Macho, was for Fielding to never know that we were there. George told us to break the window. I didn't... Jesus, Gordon. Who's Gordon? You tore the place apart. Why is all the on the floor? Oh, tranquilo, tranquilo. We come up with a plan. We made a mess, threw some pills around to make it seem like junkies were looking for drugs. Where'd you get the pills? We broke into a doctor's office, <laughs> down the hall. May I ask a question? I think I would only... What kind of a drug addict, A, brings his own drugs to a crime scene, and B, scatters them about the floor and leaves them behind? That's a fair point. That's a fair point. So Irene, Jim, Irene, Jim said slapstick, and I mean, I you know, I think the more you watch it, and the more you kind of reach back, and I've got my Gary Graff uh, history of Watergate beside me while I'm watching it, you realize the slapstick was there all the time. The difficulty, the the, the bigger jump, is going to be to make some of these characters seem plausibly human. Yes, exactly. I mean, I I also was very put off at the beginning, and part of it was because it happened fast, and I was sort of. Uh, I was like, wait a minute, I didn't have my Watergate history right next to me, though I did have a historian sitting next to me who was helping me out with with some of the facts. But I just felt like, wow, I mean, they're just, are they just taking this story and making it into a wacky version of it? And and it was only as I got into it more that I realized, no, they actually did do these wacky things in ways that didn't necessarily, why did, you know, they didn't need to infiltrate the Democratic, you know, office. And so the slapstick suddenly becomes much more, truthful than I than I had any idea. And, you know, Jim, one thing we should say is that I don't think there are many historical events, uh, at least in uh, American history, that are in as well documented. I mean, everybody wrote a book. Every freaking person wrote a book. There's a moment in the series where G. Gordon Liddy, Justin Theroux, says there's no way he's ever writing a book. And we're sitting there thinking, no, you wound up writing one of the most popular <laughs> books. Right. You, you wrote a book right. that made you a lot of money, so that's not true. But I mean, everybody wrote a book, and then everybody wrote books about books, and this series is to some degree or other based on a book, but either by Eagle Bud Crow, or I think maybe his son or something. Bud Crow, who's a minor water... Watergate figure felt that the Watergate, um, the White House plumber story, the Watergate break-in story was never told properly. But there's just so much to work from that, you know, this is, it's sort of unusual that way. You know, I guess maybe again, it's sort of a Rorschach block, right? Block. You can look at well, it and see what you want. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I particularly like that we're seeing this story from the point of view of these two characters. And I think Howard Hunt afterwards sort of disappears into obscurity, basically. And Gordon Liddy gets a talk show, even though he's sort of a Nazi. It's, I mean, the whole thing is nuts, right? It's a nuts ocean. So while you're walking, watching it, you think, like, that's not true. Well, that can't be true. And lo and behold, it's true. Most of everything in there is true. And I, I guess it's probably not as slapstick 
as we think it is, because that's the way they talked and that's the way they behaved. And they did do all these things. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a scene so, where, where Liddy insists on shooting these lights, uh, a light out that's like over an entrance. That happened. He climbed up on another guy's shoulders. Hand. Go ahead. Yeah. He frequently held his hand over, the, oh, yeah. over a candle. Right. You like him? Toughest guy I know. He has a thing that he does to prove his commitment. He'll hold his hand in the flame of a candle. And what's the trick? There's a one. Gets third degree burns every time, never flinches. He's a great guy. And ate a rat and tried to get struck by lightning. Um, <laughs> he did, Liddy didn't just get a talk show. He'd be like on Password with Betty White. <laughs> I mean, right. He, I mean, he was on Letterman. I mean, he would be on Letterman just, you know, exchanging quips. So when my sister's cat slew a rat, uh, I cooked it and I ate the left rear haunch of it and there went the fear of rats. That was when I was 11 years old. Hmm. Nothing unusual, nothing unusual about that. I've been, I've been told that that is a process known to psychologists as desensitization. Yeah, um, but they, these are dramatic examples of, of that <laughs> philosophy. Well, this is a dramatic show, is it not? Oh, you bet. Um, <laughs> Right. This horrible, dangerous Nazi guy, he was kind of sanitized into sort of a generalized celebrity because he somehow or other, I think at some point, got the joke about himself or or somebody told him to, to, to get the joke. That was the news, talking about the most recent screen adaptation of the Watergate story, HBO's White House Plumbers. After a break, we'll look at probably the most important screen adaptation of the Watergate story. You can almost take out the word probably. It's the movie version of All the President's Men. Okay, all kinds of people to thank because we're pulling from four shows made over the last 10 years. That would include Anya Grandalski, Betsy Kaplan, Kat Pastor, Katie Tularski, Lily Tyson, Kion Wolf, and very, very especially Jonathan McPants, who is pulling this whole thing together in a very, very marvelous and creative way. Here comes the president's helicopter. We'll end with a look at Alan Pakula's and William Goldman's and Robert Redford's movie version of All the President's Men. Later, a bit of our conversation with the late actor Hal Holbrook, who played Deep Throat. But first, Ann Hornaday is the Washington Post's chief film critic and the author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. She wrote a piece for The Post called How All the President's Men Went from Buddy Flick to Masterpiece. Alderman was the fifth name to control that fund, and Sloan would have told the grand jury. Sloan wanted to tell the grand jury. Why didn't he? Because nobody asked. Nobody asked him. The cover-up had little to do with the break-in. It was to protect covert operations and the covert activities involving the entire U.S. intelligence community. Did Deep Throat say that people's lives are in danger? Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. You know the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. 
Not that any of that matters. But if you guys up again, I'm going to get mad. So, you know, Woodward and Bernstein did a smart thing. They wrote a book that was essentially written as a detective story with them as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. It's a procedural. You see them kind of investigating this whole question. And then this movie gets made. Uh, one of the things that you talk about or write about is the fact that this movie could have been made very differently. William Goldman, the legendary screenwriter, I think when he was first told by Robert Redford, who'd optioned the book about the project, he didn't even know who Woodward and Bernstein were. He didn't recognize those names, uh, but he was the guy who was going to bring it to life. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Right. And of course, there are so many competing versions of even this story of how (laughs) Goldman got attached. But, you know, Goldman had had written Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the great Waldo Pepper for Redford, and they had become friendly. And at some point when, you know, it took Redford months and months just to run Woodward to ground to even talk to him about doing a movie of the of the book that they were working on just because Woodward and Bernstein were so skittish about, you know, going Hollywood and all of that. But at some point in one of those very early meetings that Redford had with Woodward and Bernstein, he invited Goldman to come along. And he always intended it to be a character study of these two mismatched, very different temperamentally, culturally, physically, just any, you name it. You know, their journalistic experience was completely different. He just thought the whole kind of odd couple nature of their of their collaboration was interesting. And the fact that their sort of, um, you know, shoe leather sleuthing eventually led to what we know as Watergate. But he really wanted to home in on that that very early those early months of the investigation so that was the conceit or the the scaffolding that he wanted goldman to kind of look at and think about right and that was ultimately i mean as you say I think about that, the documentary I saw about the making of Galaxy Quest and all the things that could could have been not Galaxy <laughs> Quest. It's kind of like this. It's a, like a whole bunch of things have to go right and a whole lot of things that are bad ideas have to go wrong and get kicked out for any really great movie to be made. But what we wind up with is this kind of masterpiece of paranoia. And, and you know, and it's sort of interesting, too, because usually it takes a while to digest the pig and the python of some terrible event. I mean, oddly enough, Pakula's preceding movie was The Parallax View, which was one of several movies inspired by the Kennedy assassinations, the two Kennedy assassinations. But it took, you know, a decade or, or more to be able to make movie a movie like that or executive action. A conspiracy will make us look like a banana republic. We don't have them. That's what we pay our intelligence agencies to prevent They'll deny a conspiracy down to the last man, lay the whole thing off on some crazy damn fool who did it all on his own. Who's the crazy damn fool? He'll be provided. Charlie McCadden just called from El Paso. Governor Connolly has just left the president. And they made a private agreement that he will make a political pilgrimage to Texas to woo votes, probably in the fall. So it, it's like piggyback within two years on those. We have a movie that evokes a lot of that kind of DC paranoia, except in connection with Watergate. Exactly. I mean, it's it's absolutely remarkable when you think about the fact, you know, Woodward and Bernstein finished their book before the story is finished. You know, they it, it, it's barely even halfway through. Goldman turns in his first draft before Nixon resigns. I mean, that's how fast events were moving while they were working on this. But again, I think, 
the, the movie fairly or unfairly has been sort of the, the prism through which we understand Watergate. I mean, when something is as good as all the president's men, it endures. And so then that becomes public memory. And when in reality, it was just about this very specific period in the investigation, these very early days. So I don't think, you know, I can't speak for Redford, but I, I don't think anybody, Redford or Pakula, ever intended for this to be the Watergate movie, right? They, they It was a very specifically, very tightly focused character study of these two men and this very tightly focused procedural that has sort of in ensuing years become kind of the metonym of the metonym, if you will. You know, Watergate itself is a metonym for so many different layers of conspiracy and characters and investigations and and turnabouts. And then the movie becomes an, an even more distilled kind of almost reductive version of that. Yeah. And I think it's not only all of the things that you just said, but it also becomes kind of the template for a kind uh, of narrative. And I don't think any subsequent subsequent cultural product embraced that template as fervently as the series that I'm about to play a clip from. I've given you so much this evening. You've offered me next to nothing in return. You haven't told me anything I didn't already know. I'm curious. If you've encountered Krychek, why didn't you kill him then? Because he has the tape. Ah, yeah. The tape. The tape he's been selling those secrets off. You don't know where he is either, do you? You're looking for him too. Mr. Mulder, anyone can be gotten to. Certainly you've no doubt of that. That, of course, is The X-Files, you know, which is when it's not about the monster of the week, it's always about these kind of shadowy meetings in parking garages and other shaded areas uh, of Washington, D.C. For the first season, there's literally a character known as Deep Throat. He gets killed off. But there are other people like this guy. Uh, I mean, in, in a way, Pakula not only created this kind of semi-mythic understanding of, of Watergate, but the movie kind of sets the stage for more paranoid fiction. Totally. And, you know, <laughs> I love that you played that because the last article that I did kind of deep diving into a film that had as much kind of cultural influence as, as all the presidents been was was JFK, was Stone, Oliver Stone's JFK. And you can make a direct you can draw a direct line between the Mr. X speech, you know, Donald Sutherland's just, you know, the soliloquy about all of these shadowy conspiracies which is considered a mini masterpiece of relaying very dense information and gnarly information. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open empty windows overlooking Dealey, never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, coat over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. But you can draw a direct line from that to all the president's men, which did the exact same thing. You know, I mean, it's just it's just constantly throwing information at the audience 
that could be considered arcane. I mean, it, none of this should work on paper. It's all telephones and talking, you know, the most uncinematic things in the whole world. But Pakula's genius was knowing what to do. I think, frankly, it was casting. You know, I mean, Redford had been cast by Warner Brothers. They wouldn't make it unless he starred. And then he had to find a star of his equal. And there's Dustin Hoffman. And then Bakula just populates the film with perfect supporting players and character actors and even background players to give it just this um, this deep, this depth and this breadth um, that is constantly giving the audience information, you know, whether it's visual or verbal or sonnet, you know, in terms of that great musical score by David Shire and the sound design. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think he it's absolutely the it's the urtext, you know, for, for an entire genre. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. That, I don't have to tell you, is the voice of the late Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat in All the President's Men. We talked to him in 2015 in an interview that wound up winning a major national award. I told him that I'd read that Robert Redford wanted Holbrook to be Deep Throat because he felt that Deep Throat should be somebody with real stature, an actor with real stature. And I asked Holbrook if he remembered much about what he was told at the time he got that part. Well, I turned that down, too. (laughs) (laughs) All my good stuff I turned down. And Bob Redford was a friend of ours. Carol, my second wife, went to school with him. And so so he came to the house and tried to talk to me about uh, this role because uh, he didn't want me to turn it down. And I kept saying, Bob, nobody will see me. I'm in the dark. <laughs> I said, there's nothing to it. It's a tiny role. And he kept saying, Al, believe me, this role will be, will be remembered better than any other in the film. I said, come on, Bob, give it up. And he said, no, I know, I know, I, I'm, I know I'm right. And, you know, he was right. So I, I said, okay, I'll do it. And so we did it in the dark. And, uh, you know, down in the lowest level of the uh, Century City parking garage, which was still being built, was full of construction, construction du- dust. And I had to stand against a post. And Gordon Willis, I think, was the DP, great cameraman. And I couldn't move more than an eighth of an inch because his camera was catching, I think it was the right edge of my eyes, the bone under my eye, you know, it was lit. And I couldn't move. And I, I had to stand there for hours doing it over and over. And then Bob would go and talk to the director and then come back and do it again. Must have taken 20 shots of that thing. My conception of the role was built mostly on personal feeling about it because, as I remember, I don't think they told me too much because I didn't know who he was or said they did not know who he was. 
we didn't know. And I, I felt it was important for Deep Throat to be somebody who was doing something beneath him. I thought it was important for him to be a dignified man who'd served maybe more than one president, several pres of both sides, was more of a, of a person serving the country. And he had to make this horrible decision. And it was a terrible decision. And I understood some of the machinations and the, the workings of, of Washington. And you, you do not betray the president if you're working for him mm. or on his team. And so this was a terrible thing this man had to do. And he made a decision based upon his loyalty to the country rather than loyalty to the, to the, uh, to the president. And uh, I thought he, he should have cuff links and be well-dressed and feel that he was totally out of his environment in this dirty garage mm -hmm. doing a dirty thing. <laughs> and that was the underlying emotion that I tried to get across. Now, you would have been within your rights to ask Woodward and Bernstein to tell you who Deep Throat was. And at no. that time, of course, it was no. a big mystery. Did, did no. you consider that? No, they, they said they did not know or, or if, you know, you just didn't ask. It was really a big secret everywhere, everywhere. And whoever knew it, I don't know who knew it, but everybody said they didn't know who it was. It didn't matter. You know, the point is, see, everybody wanted to know when it came out that what's his name was, was Deep Throat. You know, everybody, oh, gee whiz, what did you think of that? It made me angry because I was doing a CBS interview. I was, they caught me in a hallway somewhere. <laughs> I got mad at the interviewer. I said, look, the point here is not who Deep Throat was. Don't you get it? The point is what he did. The point is what he did for our country. That is what you're supposed to get out of this, not who did it. This is not Disneyland. This is America having a tough time. And I think also not knowing who he was gave you a certain amount of freedom to do the work of imagination that you're describing, the, the notion. I mean, I think you came pretty close, too. I think Mark Felt probably was the kind of guy who thought this was beneath him, that he was forced to do it. But he kind of held his nose in that process. Well, I, I think anybody would. You know, Colin, I mean, let's face it. If you were the guy, what would you be thinking on? Yeah, it's hard to imagine. But then that's your job as an actor. That's what you have to ask yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, that that was, to me, what was important. What was important? When I do a role, I take it very seriously. I don't just take it as an actor doing a part, look at me, look at me. I try to figure out what the role is about. And if it has some... Well, I hate the word message, but if it has something to give to the people who are watching... Something more than just, oh, look at that, he's portraying, you know, whatever. If it has something, a message of some kind that's important to us as people, human beings, that's what I want to get to if I can. That was the late actor Hal Holbrook way back in 2015. And now it's time to say goodbye. This is, I hope, been a really refreshing and unusual kind of show. It was different for us. Thank you so much for listening. I don't know how you celebrate a Watergate, but happy Watergate. Put some tape on a door at minimum, you know, just some regular old duct tape, electrician tape to hold the latch open, and then just sit around for the rest of the day hoping somebody shows up. 